Good morning. Uh, and if you're joining us tonight, thank you for joining us. Um, glad you're with us. So I was in college at Texas A&M. I lived in a dorm complex that was four dorms, two guys, two dorms, two girls dorms, fed into a commons area. There was pool tables and TV rooms and downstairs where we would eat. In my sophomore year, I served as a part of the dorm council, and we would make decisions like, where do we want to host the Aston party? There were two or three places you could host it. Or, okay, we're going to do Aston week. That was our dorm. What week will we do it, and what events will we choose? And at the end of the semester, if there was money left over from our Coke machine fund, would we buy a microwave, would we buy a popcorn popper, or whatever? And I thought, yeah, I've had enough of that. Well, my junior year, I found out there's a survey going around, and, and there's a move to change visiting hours. The way it was that everybody of the opposite gender couldn't be in the dorm until 10 a.m. in the morning, but then um, they couldn't, they had to leave at 10 o'clock, Sunday through Thursday night, and it was 1.30 on Friday and Saturday mornings. And so we thought it would be great to have 24-hour visiting on the weekends. So there was meetings, and there were surveys, and then each dorm had a movement through their, their dorm council, and, and, and it, it passed. And so then it went from the dorm council to the head of housing. And I wasn't there when it happened, but I heard what the head of council, the head of housing looked at and he said, nope, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we did a survey, and we went through the legislative process, and this is something we'd like you to consider. Nope. And, and the long and short of it is, you don't have that kind of authority. You've exceeded your authority in this request. And the students were burned up. Burned up, I'll tell you. We passed this, and it was our decision, and you just say, nope, yep. Why? Because there's a limit to your authority. There's a limit to your authority. You don't get to make that decision. That decision gets dictated to you. And we don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear it individually. We don't like to hear it corporately. Well, here's why I say that. Nations, especially powerful nations, think they are large and in charge. No one tells them what to do. Um, and they set themselves up to God, and, and they want to be worshipped as God. And God, like he the, had a housing set at the door, and people, there's a limit to your authority. There's only so much you can do. Well, what about those nations who refuse to recognize God's ultimate authority? That's what I want to talk about today. So if you got a, a Bible feed, open it to Revelation chapter 17. We're going to go through this, and we're going to ask this question of the text. What is the end of nations who refuse to recognize God's ultimate authority? What is the end of nations who refuse to recognize God's ultimate authority? Let me give you a quick overview. If you haven't been with us, we've been looking at the Revelation, book of Revelation, the last number of weeks. Chapters 1 through, uh, verses 1 through 9, really set the understanding of how we're going to communicate God gives John an apocalypse, a vision. He's going to communicate through symbols. Think of a political commentator who uses a political cartoon. The symbols are communicating a message. But this is not a message for us to speculate and wonder about. It's a prophetic word. That comes through in chapter 1, verse 4. At the end of the book, chapter 22, there'll be some reflection on it. The word prophecy will be used four times. Prophecy is instruction on how to live. This is an instruction for seven churches on how to live in a time when they are being forced to worship the Roman emperor as God. And John writes this in the form of a letter. He's shepherding these people. He's doing it from the island of Patmos. He has already felt persecution because he's been exiled there. 
He's living out his life there, but he's shepherding these seven churches in the form of a letter. And chapters one through three then are God's take on each church. How are you doing? What's going well? What needs to continue? What needs to change? In chapters four and five in the vision, John is in heaven and he sees heaven and it's, things are in order, but they're not on order on earth. And there's a scroll written on both sides that really has God's plan to bring heaven to earth, to vindicate the righteous and to judge the unrighteous, but there's seven seals on it. And you need to have the authority to break this. No one has the authority to do that. And John begins to weep until he hears about the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. Very militaristic terms from the Old Testament suggest conquering, but then sees a slain lamb. The idea is, God conquers his enemies by dying for them, and it's a model for the church. In this one, Jesus has the authority, and that sets off a set of three judgments, three sets of seven. The first is the seals, and each seal is opened and, and reveals a judgment, and the seventh seal introduces a second set of judgments, the trumpet judgments. So the first set are in verses, uh, chapters six through eight. They introduce them the trumpet judgments in verses 8 through 11, and that introduces a third set of judgments, the bowl judgments, which are later. But before we get to those bowl judgments, we get a, a cosmic interlude, if you will, that describes what's really going on is not a battle between humanity, but a spiritual battle. Behind these nation states, and in fact, every institution that would demand our allegiance is Satan himself. And we get introduced to a dragon in chapter 12, who is representative of Satan, and, and two... Um, subordinates, they're beasts. And one is the Antichrist, and one is another one who points people to worship the Antichrist as God. They're, they're introduced in chapter 13. And so chapters 12 through 14 remind us there's a spiritual battle going on. Then finally, chapters 15 and 16 give us the third set of judgments, the bold judgments, and that brings us to the end of time. The kingdom of God is coming in. Then chapter 17 and 18, God will begin to deconstruct, dismantle anything that stands in his way. Chapter 19 will be the final battle of evil against God. And chapter 20, 21, and 22 will be God bringing in his kingdom. So we're in that point where God is now facing down those institutions, those governments that would stand against him. And here's what he says. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. When we get to verse 15, we'll understand that the many waters is the many nations over which ultimately Rome has control. And Rome is, a, Rome is an archetype or a, an image of, of the nation state that would stand against God. Uh, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of immorality. Rome, in ruling and in, in conquering these nations, has poured them in, has pulled them in to this immorality. interesting that God calls Rome a great harlot. Culture recognized her as the goddess Roma. One of beauty, one to be worshipped. God sees her known, beautiful on the inside. On the outside is a harlot, but, but dirty on the inside. God calls Rome a harlot. And so, verse 3, he carried me away, this is John speaking, in the spirit into a, into a wilderness. Wilderness is often a place of judgment. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, again, the scarlet representative of the blood that has been shed, 
full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And we'll, we'll talk about those seven ten, heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet. In, in Rome, uh, purple and scarlet were, were colors of luxury and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, signs of great wealth. Having in her hand a cup full of abominations and of the clean things of her immorality. She looks beautiful, but, but in her hand she's full of filth and wrong. And on her forehead a name written, a mystery, Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and of abominations of the earth. Again, Rome is a, is a type for Babylon, who in the Old Testament was the, the nation that stood against God. And as a harlot, what does a harlot do? It involves, she involves other people in immorality. These nations have pulled in other countries, other cultures in their defiance against God. I think it's worthwhile for us to step back. It's arguably the most powerful, influential country in the world and consider our influence. So my wife, Hope, and I served for a couple years in Latin America as missionaries, and we were house-sitting for a couple and it was Halloween night, and we're watching TV, and there's a knock at our door, and we think, these people are trick-or-treating. 5,000 miles from the United States, they're trick-or-treating. We had no idea. Well, we had no candy, so we got tricked. All of a sudden, our lights go out. They threw our breaker. So we got to call the people who were house. Where's the breaker? Oh, it's at the front of the house. We went and turned it on. And so the next day, we asked our Chilean students and friends, what's the gig? Why do you trick-or-treat? Because the U.S. does it. We copy the United States. And I'll talk more about that. In fashion magazines, you know who was in Chile, you know who they chose as models? Sons and daughters of European or U.S. missionaries. Why? Because they wanted to be like the United States. Those Chile is a culture of people of color. The most attractive people were those who were the most fair, the most white. There was a huge German population came in during World War II. Sometimes they would use uh, sons and daughters of, of those German immigrants because they were fairer, they were more European. They hated themselves. Why? Because of the influence of the West, because of the influence of the United States. That's the kind of impact the U.S. has on our world. So this word to Rome ought to make us stop back and, and consider. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. I want to stop there. These countries, the farther they go down the road to seeing themselves as God and as being worshipped, the more they oppose the people of God and the more they persecute or execute those who would stand for God and say, no, you're not God, Jesus is. And his last comment, from John, is alarming. Here's what it says in verse 6. When I saw her, John says, I, was, I wondered greatly. That, that might be better translated, greatly astonished. Astonished by what? By her beauty. By her attractiveness. What is God calling this woman? A what? A harlot. But man, she looks good on the outside. Rotten on the inside. Looks good on the outside. Hey, what the world has to offer is packaged well. It looks good. And if John, in a vision, can think, wow, so can you and I. 
what the world has to offer, whether it's a nation state, whether it's an institution, whether it's a, an award, whether it's a, a value of comfort or popularity, it looks good. But the book is, is calling us to step back and, and to consider. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the women, of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. There's an intentional play on words in verse 8. The beast you saw was and is not. This is a, Jesus is, was and is and is to come. Jesus is eternal. John is saying this beast is not eternal. You saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Very clearly wordplay to say this beast is not eternal. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast and what he was and is not and will to come. There's our wordplay again. The beast is not eternal. Governments are not eternal. Leaders are not eternal. Human institutions are not eternal. Human values are not eternal. But the world wonders. They're, they're astonished. They're taken. So it's a word of warning to people. Verse 9, here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. Again, Rome is known as the city of the seven hills. And so the first readers would understand their personal application is Rome, on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Seven is being used symbolically here. It's the number of completion. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And, and scholars get all, oh, oh, who are the, who's he talking about? Who are the five? Who are the, who's the one? Who's the one about to fall? I would not get caught up in that. I would say this. Jesus is saying to John, this kingdom is short-lived. Using seven as a number of completion. Five have come and gone. One is, he's about to go. One more, and he'll be gone. See, you're being called to link to something that looks like it will last forever, but in reality, it is short. It's calling for an eternal perspective. Verse 11, the beast which was and is not, again, that wordplay, not eternal, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven. The beast then is the figure that was introduced in Romans 13, the, uh, Revelation 13, the Antichrist. And these kings are linked to him. They're not him, but they're linked to him in that they're wanting to be worshipped as God. And he, this beast, goes to destruction. Now we're going to talk about the ten horns. And again, this is tied to Daniel 7, verse 7. talks about the ten horns. The ten horns, again, a number of completion, which you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. And again, scholars get caught up, who are the ten? I don't think we're looking to name the ten, but we're seeing this is the number of totality, those kingdoms that don't have authority but are trying to get it by submitting to Rome or the world power. Their time is short-lived. It's one hour. They have one purpose. And they gave their power and authority to the beast. Now here's what will happen at the end of time. These will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. We'll see about this in Revelation 19. And those who are with them are the called and chosen and faithful. Verse 15, he said to me, the waters, this is what we talked about in verse 1, which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. 
And the ten horns which you saw are the beast. These will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Look, you think these, these alliances of these nations, they're, 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 they're coming together for, for one good. No, no, they're interested in self. And at some point, they'll see an opportunity to turn on Rome, and they will, and, and that's what happened. And the Antichrist will be involved. There, there's, there's nothing altruistic about this. It's self-interest, and they're looking to get ahead. And, and, and one day, they'll turn on Rome. And, and ultimately, it is of God that they do that. Verse 17, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city, referring to Rome which reigns over the kings of the earth. So we started by asking a question. These nations that think they're an authority unto themselves, that don't realize, just like the Dorm Council, there's a limit to your authority. There's so far you can go. They, don't, they think they are God. What's their end? They'll be dismantled. Dismantling is the end of those nations who will not recognize God's final authority. Dismantling, taking apart, is the end of those nations who will not recognize God's final authority. How many of you either played or had kids or grandkids who played with Legos back in the day? Okay? So you put those things together, and at some point, you need to take them apart. You can take them apart piece by piece, or you can take them down and our kids tend to and they scatter. Well, one way or another, they're dismantled, right? That's what's coming with these kingdoms that have been assiduously built. They put together and they think they're strong. No, in a second, or with one throw, God's dismantling them. And I think that ought to make us think where we give our allegiance to a nation state, to an institution. Remember, behind all these things ultimately is Satan. And the question, if I can bring Revelation down to one word, the question is allegiance. Where will you give your allegiance? There's a world system and a devil behind it that is trying to convince us and enwrapping. I mean, it looks good. The harlot looks good. Scarlet and purple, gold and all this kind of stuff. But it's rotten on the inside. So again, I ask us to think about where are we being led astray? And certainly has individual application, but I think more it has application for nations because what we're talking about in chapter 17 is nations. The more powerful the nation, the more likely they are to set themselves up. But God, what about those? Perhaps the greatest corporate sin of our history is slavery. In 1864, President Abraham Lincoln was giving his second inaugural address. And uh, he, the Civil War was ongoing. And this is what he said. Yet if God wills that it, it being the Civil War, continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. So what he's saying is, there's a lot of people who made a lot of money on slavery. If this war has to go on until all that wealth is sunk, 
God's attitude is, so be it. Lincoln went on to say, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another's drawn with the sword. So there were people who were whipped and beaten. And God said, you'll reap what you sow. And that blood is being required, requited by the sword. He saw the civil wars, the judgment of God, and historians have studied Lincoln, and nobody knows for sure, but they feel like there was a tale of, uh, of deism moving as things got more grim towards Christianity. And again, historians speculate on this, but this is how Lincoln ends this statement. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What's the point? God said every person, man and woman, is created in God's image. In the name of God, you can't subjugate a people and beat them and separate them without there being consequences. And for the church, the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, are called to take care of the vulnerable. So how did the nation do? How did the church do in the face of slavery? Well, I've got to tell you, the results are mixed. Part of the abolition movement, the free slaves, came out of the church. People who said, in the name of God, people are born and created in God's image. This can't continue. And they risked their lives and they transported slaves. But I also must tell you, especially in the South, there were churches naming the name of Jesus with the Bible who had come up, and I'm intentionally putting the term, phrase in quotes, with a biblical basis for slavery. And if you read it, it's pretty flimsy. It's pretty weak. Well, what drove this biblical basis? This is what drove the biblical basis right here. There was money in slavery. And they couldn't follow God's word and edict because they were addicted to money. Church was mixed. And heeding God's admonition to care for the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the slave. Let me to move to another topic. And in the, in the subject, as, a, as a nation, the subject of purity and, 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 and holiness and righteousness. Summer of 1986, I was on a summer mission trip to Istanbul. Halfway through, they put us on a train. It's a week of vacation. We went out. We saw Ephesus. We all saw all kinds of stuff. But they put us on a train, and out we go. And they let us out, and they say, you're on your own. And we're, I don't know where we are. And we end up having this village experience. We're traveling through, and these Turks who've never seen an American go, oh, you've got to come in. So I am staying in a place that is made out of mud and dung. Uh, we're eating over a, 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 a food over a cooked fire, and I'm thinking, you know, I don't think the FDA is getting out here to check this food. I hope God's protecting me. And so we're talking, and then you know what they do? I mean, again, we're way out. I don't know where we are. Click. They turn on the TV, and there's the Cosby show dubbed in Turkish. And I thought, you're kidding. U.S. media is reaching out this far? Now, as shows go, I think the Cosby show was fairly pure. But I've got to tell you what else was coming out there. Dallas and Dynasty and Falconcrest. And if you're too old to remember those shows, these were shows that were pushing the edge on morality. They were pushing the edge on sensuality. They were portraying Immorality is something to be celebrated and good. The U.S. was exporting this. 
People take in our media. The question is, are we supporting it by putting our dollars towards it? Are we helping export that which is corrupting people? Individuals will be judged, but so will nations. One more thought. Let me step outside our country. Many of you know I spent the 93-94 school year in a campus ministry in Russia. I was in Siberia. Uh, while we were there, uh, remember it was 89, the wall fell. There had been 70 years of intentional exclusion of God, get rid of the Bible. There was no moral base in that country. The mafia ran the country. My last week I went to lunch and a, a young lady who worked at a corporation there said, somebody walked in, want to talk to my boss, laid down the company's bank statements, laid down a list of his employees and said, hey, we're worried, concerned about your employees. We, we want 20% protection money to watch over your employees. And what he's saying is, you'll pay or we'll harm your employees. And, and don't lie to us. We know what's coming through your bank. We've got your bank statements. We've got the addresses of your employees. What are you going to do? Go to the police? Don't do that. They're, they're in the pocket of the mafia. Again, there's no, no sense of right. You just, we would talk to older people. They wanted to go back to communism because at least I knew the rules under communism. And I thought, this country is ripe for a strong man. Somebody come in and somebody bring order and somebody tell the rules. And so that somebody did come in in 1999. His name is Vladimir Putin. And he spent the last 23 years or so consolidating his hold. And three months ago, he launched this special military operation, which has destroyed hundreds and thousands of lives, in my opinion, unjustly, unnecessarily. And yet I think, as a nation, Russia will be judged. There's a brain drain right now. Anybody with IT ability has gotten out. When we were there, the medical care was terrible. We had to take an AIDS test for a, to get our visas. We had people train out uh, our own needles because we didn't want to use theirs because we were afraid that they would use needles again and risk infection. The greatest danger when we were there, to me, or one of the greatest dangers, was flying Aeroflot. They had a terrible safety record. The guy that was on the team, we would fly out of Moscow to Novosibirsk. He said, Andy, last year there was a burned-out fuselage right at the entrance of the airport. That's a, that's a warm reminder. And, and planes would go down, and there's no FAA to investigate. You just quietly, you put it aside. You don't say anything. Well, one of the things that has happened is U.S. airlines, Western airlines, have said, we're not sending replacement parts. We're done. And Russia's going to continue flying these planes. How long before the plane goes down because it doesn't have a replacement? I, I'm speculating. But I can see a nation suffering judgment because of injustice, of random, ruthlessly, needlessly bringing wanton destruction. You have no business executing this war, but you do it because you think you're God. Nations will be judged failing to recognize God's ultimate authority. Back in our country, are we living out the reality of Jesus? Are we having an influence in our culture, in our place, that we might be moving this nation to consider God again? Yeah, there's an individual question, but there's, there's, a, personal, there's a corporate judgment for those who would deny God. Having lived out in... Um, Colorado, those years I worked with Campus Crusade, I had a number of friends who were on staff in, uh, on CU, Boulder, and a number of those people lived in Louisville, 
which is a, a community just outside of Boulder on the way to Denver. Well, if you know your news, this January, all of a sudden, Louisville is overtaken all of a sudden by a fire. And we have, I have one very good friend I see every summer when I go to his, his house was spared, but his neighbors weren't. But as I read his Facebook account, it's all of a sudden they show up. You need to leave now. And the sheriff, you need to leave now. Why? There's a fire. Well, fire where? In the whole community. This is, this is not, Louisville is not up in the hills. It's not in the woods. It is, it is suburban Denver. It is suburban Boulder. This is unheard of. And people were in disarray. But when do you need to go? You need to go now. The book of Revelation is a warning. You need to act when? Now. Now, God will not put up with misplaced allegiance. He judges individuals. He judges nations because of it. As we think about allegiance, let's think again about Jesus. He understood allegiance would mean he goes to the cross. He's tried in a mockery of a trial of a, as a common criminal. He's whipped and he's beaten before he's crucified. But he trusted his father. And the Bible says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He purchased your salvation and mine. Let him be our model and our leaders. Let him be our strength. Because the end of the nation that will not recognize God's authority is dismantling. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, uh, we're grateful for your warning that you care enough to say, listen, listen up. The time is urgent. The time is short. You need to rethink your allegiance. Lord, forgive us for not realizing the limit of our authority. I pray we grow to understand in giving our complete and total allegiance to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.